So let's, let's look together then at this uh, little passage. And uh, some of you will have different, some of you have read this before, will have bits of it that you're interested in, other bits you're not so interested in. We're going to take perhaps a little while to look at this, not tonight, fortunately, but to split it up over the next couple of weeks or so. I'm just not sure yet how many weeks, so I'm just alerting you to that reality. <clears throat> just in case you think he's only got that far, and it's this time already, okay? Many writers uh, despair of us ever finding true community in our society today. Let me quote from a number of them. Eric Fromm, in his book, The Sane Society, says, There's not much love to be found. Rather, a superficial friendliness concealing a distance, indifference, a subtle distrust. R.D. Lang, in his book, The Politics of Experience, talks about social alienation. He says, before we even ask the question, what is a personal relationship, we have to ask if personal relationships are even possible. Karen Horney, a respected psychiatrist in her book, The Neurotic Personality of Our Time, says that the average individual, even when he or she has many contacts with others, feels comparatively emotionally isolated, caught in the dilemma of hungering for a great deal of affection and yet finding great difficulty in obtaining it. Now, I wonder whether you identify with any of those phrases, social or superficial friendliness, social alienation, emotional isolation. If you do, then, they sum up for you a rather depressing diagnosis of our sick society. But what if there was a sign of hope? What if there was a society marked by mutual care, mutual involvement, and mutual solidarity? Well, here at the beginning of Acts, and I remind you that what is happening in this book, it's part of a two-part work, one work by Luke describing the uniqueness of what Jesus Christ has achieved. And here in the early book of Acts, part of Acts, we're discovering Jesus still at work. He's still at work through the apostles. And in these early chapters, he's at work through the apostles in the church. And he rules from his throne. And from his throne, he pours out the Spirit upon his church. And from that outpouring of the Spirit is formed a new community, a new society of people, marked by a common identity, a common activity, and a common community. And I want to look at those things, not all of them this evening, but to put them in context to begin with a common identity. Here I'm thinking of the very last verse of the previous section, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. It was an astounding day, this day of Pentecost. With the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus, with the gift of the Messiah's Spirit, the last days had finally dawned, and the long-promised end times, gathering in of the nations, had begun. On the day of Pentecost, that gathering began in earnest. Just as the Scripture foretold, people had come to Jerusalem from all over the then-known world. They'd come to Jerusalem and they had accosted Jews, Peter and others, and asked them, what shall we do? What, how shall we know God? How shall we get right with God? And they discovered the answer that was to believe that Jesus was both Lord and Messiah. 
and there had been repentance bursting out all over. There had been a change of heart, and that was attested to by their public submission to baptism in Jesus' name. You notice the flow of the passage. They received the word, and they were baptized, and they were added. That is added to the company of the disciples. And from the core group of 120 who were there, who waited for the Spirit's coming, the church now grows exponentially as thousands take a public stand, confess allegiance to Jesus as the Messiah, and his claim is laid upon them in baptism, and people are crowding to join the restored people of God. What were they added to, we ask ourselves? What were they joining that first Pentecost? Well, they were not joining something brand new. They were joining the church. They were joining the ecclesia. The connection Peter draws with Abraham and the promise that he's made, the great covenant promise, the promises to you and to your children, and then to all who are far off, that promise based on the Abrahamic covenant in which God, through Abraham, promises to reach all the nations, people from all over the world, and bless them with the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit, as well as blessing believers and their children. That promise roots what happens next in the Abrahamic covenant. Here God has called people, Jews, but also people from far off, and he's brought them into the church, the ecclesia of God. Now this word has an Old Testament background. This word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia translates the great day of assembly when Israel would gather together at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses received the covenant from the Lord on the mountaintop. And from that point on, the term was used of Israel as a congregation gathered or assembled to worship in God's presence. So Jesus was talking the language of Israel when he spoke to his disciples. He didn't have to explain what he meant. He was using language they understood when he said, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church. From the beginning of Luke's account in this chapter, following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we find the church of God together in one place, and we find them worshiping, devoting themselves to prayer in chapter 1, waiting for the promise of the Spirit to be fulfilled. So now that it's happened, now the Spirit has come, the grace of repentance has been given, individuals have repented and believed the beginning of Jesus' ecclesia, or ecclesia has begun, believers are gathered into the church of God, and we have the nucleus of this new community. It was St. Augustine who popularized the phrase, non salus extra ecclesium, no salvation outside the church, a phrase that would be misused in the Middle Ages, but nonetheless a phrase that summarizes what the New Testament teaches. Because to be saved means to be part of the saved community. You could not be a Christian without being part of the church. And how did you know you belonged? What was the mark of belonging? Well, that was easy. It was the mark of baptism. The church is composed of believers and their children. And to Jews familiar with this covenant language, the idea of a covenant people marked by circumcision, it was perfectly intelligible then for Peter to announce 
on the day of Pentecost that from now on the covenant community would be marked with the mark of baptism. So this new community then is just that. It's not a voluntary club. It's not an individualistic thing. Salvation isn't just for individuals. It's individuals who are brought together into this great bundle of life and have this new identity. They are the baptized. They are the believers. They are those who belong. They belong to God in Christ, a common identity. And I ask you this evening, do you have this identity? Is this identity yours? Are you among those who have received the Word? Have you received the good news message about what Jesus Christ has achieved for us on the cross and by His resurrection and by His exaltation to the throne of God above? Have you received that Word? Have you received it gladly into your hearts? Have you taken it for yourself? Do you own it? Is it your Word? So that you believe it, are you part of the people of God? Is that your identity? I have to say that finding yourself begins here this evening. Finding yourself in a world where people have lost themselves begins when you find a new identity in Jesus Christ. It doesn't end there. It begins there. That's the foundation of this new community. But then it goes on from there to a common Activity. You can see that now in the verses we read, verse 42. And it's picked up in this word to be devoted to something. They were devoted, these people. They were devoted together to something. There was this common commitment, involvement, activity that they shared in that rose from their hearts and was marked by what their interests were, what occupied them, what focused their attention, what was the priority of their life together. Now here in this little section we read, we have one of the fullest of this new, uh, numerous series, a series of summaries of the life of this new covenant community. And the apostle, uh, or Luke rather, presents the church not as a breakaway movement within Judaism, but as the true Israel where the Spirit of God is powerfully at work fulfilling God's end-time promises. And what we find here is a group of people who are involved, devoted to a series of activities. They're devoted to hearing and to worshipping and to praying and to sharing with one another in this new community. Well, we're going to look at some of those tonight. Actually, we may only look at one of them tonight. We'll see. First of all, they were committed to hearing, weren't they? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's where it begins. Now, that, we could slide over this little section, get into the rest of the book, but actually this is meant to be quite defining of what happens later. It's helping us to understand what's going to happen later. And we can say a number of things about the teaching that they committed themselves to hearing. We could say, for example, that it was uh, apostolic, it was public, and it was authentic. It was apostolic. Throughout the book of Acts, we have a record of a number of the speeches or sermons preached by the apostles. And the focus of that preaching in the book of Acts is on demonstrating to the unconvinced that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah, that he is both the Savior and judge of humanity, and on summoning people to a radical shift of trust and allegiance. Most of the sermons are addressed to outsiders. 
They're apologetic or evangelistic in nature. But all of them include the kernel of instruction that would be enlarged upon whenever people came to faith. It would be fleshed out. And what is fleshed out from the, le- the sermons and acts, you can find in the letters that Paul writes, for example, or Peter or John writes, in which they reflect on what they taught. They reflect on the instruction, the further instruction that they'd given to the early Christians. You can see that at the very heart of it, there is the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. They taught this to non-Christian people, to people who didn't believe. They, they gave them the information. These early uh, writers, these early preachers had first-hand testimony to give. They were there. They, they gave their talk. People would have asked them questions afterwards. They would have said, well, what was Jesus like? And what was it like to be with Jesus? And what did, what did he do here? And what would he do in this situation? And, and they were very interested in hearing the first-hand testimony about what Jesus Christ had achieved. What was it like when you saw him alive after his passion? In, in the early days of the church, you see, that was all that was being talked about. It was being imprinted on the mind of the church for future generations that these were historical events. These things happened. That's why we don't go to the book of Acts necessarily to find a blueprint for us today. These were unique days. The apostles were alive. You could meet someone and talk to someone who knew Jesus. Not just the twelve, but others. Men and women who'd known him in their, in their life and who had, had an apostolic witness in the sense that they were able to tell you firsthand what they'd heard and seen. And this book is written so that you can get a flavor for the impact that that first-hand testimony had on the people who heard it. And it's through their testimony that you and I come to believe. That's why it's so important to remind ourselves of the framework of the book, that part one, Luke's gospel, is about what Jesus did, and part two is about what he continued to do through the apostles in the early days of the church. Now, why is there such an emphasis on the role of the apostles? We've already seen this. In chapter 1, we saw how, how painstaking the effort was to make sure that the number 12 was made up. That wasn't just because they had a, had a penchant for round figures. They, they really needed to have the 12 there in place because this was, this was the, the core of the new Israel. They needed the eyewitnesses. And you notice the qualifications. We'll choose those who were with us from the beginning who were eyewitnesses of the life as well as of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul himself was conscious that he wasn't one of those, that he'd come to know the Lord Jesus in an unusual way. He had seen him alive, but he'd seen him alive after his ascension and exaltation. And so he was one born out of due time, as it were, he calls himself, one who had seen the Lord alive and therefore was qualified to be an apostle, but not one of the original twelve. So in Acts 22, Paul tells about the words spoken to him. The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be a witness of, you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. So Paul's witness, Peter's witness, the witness of the apostles, foundational, they're specially appointed by Jesus for the task. And they're specially anointed by Jesus for the task. The placing of Acts 
Not right next door to Luke where it should be because it's part two. The placing of Acts in our New Testament, in the providence of God, is quite crucial. Because there's some information that isn't in Luke that you find in John that helps you understand what's going on in Acts. And uh, that information particularly pertains to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Without John in the way, okay, without John in brackets in between Luke and Acts, you would have a whole series of questions about what's going on in the account of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because while Luke mentions the Spirit in his Gospel, he doesn't give us the expanded treatment that you find John giving us in his Gospel. So when you go to John's Gospel, you find that Jesus promises that he will send the Holy Spirit. A number of things happen here. In John's Gospel, there's an emphasis on the Word, the message of God. God the Father speaks. Jesus is the Word that God speaks. The Holy Spirit is the one who hears the word, and having heard what he, uh, the word that's been spoken, he then re-speaks that word to us. He speaks it rather not to us directly, but first of all to the apostles. So there's this action, Father, Son, Spirit, the speaker, the word, the hearer within the Trinity, and through, so all three members of the Trinity are involved in this communicative process of uh, teaching us the will and word of God. So what does Jesus talk about? We, we've mentioned this before. I just so very briefly mention it. Now he promises in chapters 14 and 16 of John's gospel that when the Holy Spirit comes to them, and he's not talking to us but to them, when the Holy Spirit comes to them, and you can see that in the language that's used, I have many things to say to you while I'm still with you. But you can't bear them right now. But after I've gone, the Spirit will come and He will remind you of what I said. He'll remind you of what I said. He'll supplement what I said by leading you into all truth. And He will tell you things to come. And that's what we have, isn't it, in our New Testament. The reminder of what Jesus said, the Gospels. The supplementing of what Jesus said, the things that He wanted to say, if it had time the, the expansion of the things he taught them in the six weeks before his ascension. We have those in the epistles, the, the letters, and the things to come, the book of Revelation. What Jesus promised the Spirit would give, we have in the Bible because, because they were specially anointed by the Spirit for the task. Here's what he says at the end of verse 15, what Jesus says. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me, and you also will testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. That's why the apostles were so crucial. You can see why this common activity in the earliest form of the church, they're giving themselves, devoting themselves. They want to make sure they learn as much about Jesus as these men who knew Jesus could teach them. And they devote themselves to the task. Later parts of Acts emphasize the priority of the apostles' teaching in the life and witness of the church. For example, in chapter 4, we read this with great power. The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So the teaching was apostolic. And then the teaching 
was public. The early Christians made it their practice to meet together in different contexts. They met together in the temple courts. They met together from house to house. And we're, we're going to look at this on another occasion, but you can see in the, in the different kind of venues in which they met that there are different kinds of gatherings for God's people. There are more formal gatherings and there are informal gatherings. Now, the more formal gatherings which here are associated with the temple and which were probably held there because of the need for a big space to have a large crowd, a growing crowd, a, a growing daily, a crowd of people who are wanting to hear what the apostles were teaching. And the people who went there wanted to identify with the public preaching of the gospel to their fellow Israelites. It was an act of testimony. So Christians gathering together in large numbers is an act of testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel. And it was the word of God that drove the numerical expansion of the church, as well as the depth of its spiritual maturity. Luke reports the word of God multi continued to increase. The word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God continued to increase and to prevail mightily. The teaching was public. It was done not in secret, but it was a public matter. It's a matter of public interest. And then, thirdly, the teaching was authentic. See, how did you know that these men who were standing up and purporting to be ear and eyewitnesses of Jesus, how did you know that they'd been with Jesus? What kind of empirical proof could they demonstrate that they had been with him and were associated with him? Well, it's very interesting to see how it's spelt out in the passage. Earlier on in Luke's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Luke had spoken to these people who had been in Jerusalem and who were natives to Palestine. And he said, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus of Nazareth. You know who he is. I don't have to, I don't have to make a big argument that he existed, you know, or, or where, where did he come from? Or you all know this because you've all seen one of his miracles or you all know someone who was healed by him or you all know someone who was there when he raised someone from the dead. You, you know all this news about what Jesus Christ accomplished. You all were there. There's a good southern phrase that I just snuck in, snuck in there. As we'd say in Glasgow, yous were there. The plural of you. You all were there. You were there when you, and you saw these things. So, so he, he presents, and this is important, by the way, for your understanding of miracles and signs and wonders. He presents the miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus performed as credentials for his messiahship, his sonship, and as the basis for their believing that he was the one sent by God. Now, what do we, what do we read here? Verse 43. Signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. What did these early Christians notice? What was the evidence that these people had been with Jesus? They did what Jesus did. Why did they give ear to the apostles? Well, because the apostles were part of the band who were with Jesus, and they were doing what kind of things that Jesus did. Not as many. They didn't do as mighty things as Jesus did, but they were doing a lot of stuff that Jesus did. Therefore, you had to listen to them. In other words, the signs and wonders they performed were part of the credentials of being an apostle. That was basic. So the apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 12, 
the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. The apostles never had a dummy run at healing someone. The apostles never had a kind of mixed response when they did a work of power. It was always a work of power. They were unique. And that begs the question, of course, I suppose, in your mind, does God heal today? And the answer, the answer is, of course he does. He heals through means and he heals without means. He heals as he pleases. He heals through our medical friends. He's given them the gifts. There's no distinction in the Bible between natural gifts and spiritual gifts. They're all gifts of the Creator. So he uses means. And sometimes he heals in answer to prayer. The church I was in before, the elders would be asked from time to time to pray with people, anoint them with oil, and pray for their healing. Occasionally, there was healing. The point is, however, nobody is doing what the apostles did today. Nobody. And even to claim, for people to claim that they're doing what the apostles did is actually to belittle what was going on in Acts. It's to rubbish what was going on in Acts. It absolutely stands alone. Uh, you can, uh, for example, if you want further evidence of the uniqueness of this in the uh, book of Hebrews, if I can find the reference just off the top of my head, but uh, when he's talking about our so great salvation in Hebrews chapter 2, he says this, that uh, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what I say about, about healing today is that they're not normal, they're special. And they're occasional, but they're real. God does answer prayer today. But we have to separate that from what's being described here. We mustn't confuse in our minds what we see today with what was seen then. What they saw then were people doing what Jesus did with the same consistent effectiveness that Jesus had with a 100% record as Jesus did so that people were able to say about these men, those men were with Jesus. Absolutely. And that was necessary. Why? Because these men were giving their first-hand testimony to the church of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Oh, that was a sideline. But here's, here's how I want to just draw it together as we come to close this evening. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Christopher Hitchens, in, in his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, tells us how he went and explored 
what he calls the Eastern Solution. He visited an ashram of a celebrated guru in Pune in the hills above Mumbai. And at the entrance of the tent where the guru taught, there was a sign which read, Shoes and minds must be left at the gate. And he rightly mocks the idea of being asked to check in his mind at the gate. Because even to a new atheist, even to a new atheist, truth matters. Truth matters. One social observer has suggested four characteristic questions of recent generations like this. If you were born before 1945, you're likely to ask the question, is it true? The post-World War II generation up to about 1964, the baby boomers are more pragmatic. They want to ask, does it work? Generation X were consumers. They ask the question, do I want it? The millennium generation ask, will I look good if I buy into this belief? Well, of course, it's, a, it's an oversimplification. But the reality is that the old question, is it true, still keeps coming back onto the agenda. And sometimes we Christians fudge. We use language like the language of a personal relationship. Somebody says to you, what does Christianity mean to you? And you say to them, it means a personal relationship with Jesus. So what does that look like, they ask you? Well, Jesus speaks to me. So you have a little voice going on in your head and Jesus speaks to you. Should you go and see a psychiatrist? No, 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 no. That's not what it is to tell me, but, but Jesus speaks to me. And you see, the problem with that kind of response is it leaves you totally vulnerable, doesn't it? It leaves you vulnerable to being exposed by your friend. It leaves you vulnerable to subjective to a commitment to subjective experience that are relying on your own emotional energy to keep this going that may disappoint you in the end. How many Christians are just nowhere today because they saw their testimony as being something that they had to articulate about how they felt or had experienced about Jesus and they couldn't sustain it. They couldn't sustain it. Because at the end of the day, you see, the personal relationship with Jesus does involve Jesus speaking to us, but we need to know in how he speaks to us. And here we find at the very beginning of the story of the church exactly how he speaks to us. It's not a voice inside your head. It's a public voice. Tonight it's mine. And it's the voice of the Holy Spirit through my voice. God uses a human voice to speak to you his word publicly, in the hearing of these people here, this word, and you can read it and you can hear it, and God is pleased to use a public voice to speak into your heart. It may be in this setting, it may be in a one-to-one -one setting, it may be a friend of yours who either summarizes or uses an idea that's in the Bible to speak to you or to encourage you, to exhort you, to rebuke you, or whatever it may be. But the Word of God comes from the Word of God, and it comes to your heart. It's not a voice in your head. Of course, sometimes part of the Bible comes popping into your mind. And no doubt the Holy Spirit's put it there. 
But it's never a word out of the blue, and it's not a word out of the air, and it's not down to how you're feeling. It's down to something that has objectively been said, because at the end of the day, when the little voice speaks, whether it speaks publicly or speaks privately or speaks personally, you can go back to the book. You can check it out. Did he really say this? Did he really mean that? I guess, I guess that's what's good about writing love letters, especially if there's distance between the lovers. The words that were spoken in private, whispered in the ear, will soon dissipate. The memory plays tricks with you. The words are rearranged. The words are sometimes forgotten. The feeling that went with the words sometimes dissipates with the passing of time. And it's in those moments you want to pull out the old letters. And you want to read what was written objectively, outside of your head, so that you can be sure that's what he meant. And that's really what the Bible does for us. I'm glad that what the apostles said then was eventually written down so that we have it today. So that if we want to know what is truth, we don't look inside ourselves. We look outside of ourselves, and we look to something that is objective. Not that it stays there. We have to get out of ourselves to get it, but then we have to bring it back into ourselves. There's this movement, isn't there, from out there to in here, Not from in here to out there, but from out there to in here. From this objective word to my heart. So that I embrace it like these people were doing. They were devoting themselves to it. They wanted to make it part of themselves. So it would make a difference to them. Then. And to us now. That's it. No time for anything else. Come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please give us a heart, a humble heart, to hear your word, to thirst for it, to hunger for it, to hear you through it. Open us up to you, we pray, in Jesus' strong name. Amen.